turn with me, open your Bibles, open the Word of God as we read together Psalm 46. The choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set the Alamoth a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Lord, we come before you. I come before you now. And I pray for my own heart. And I pray for the heart of all of the folks this morning. Lord, where I am blind, give me understanding. Where I am unteachable, make me humble. Where I cling to my own ideas and strength, make me depend on you. Where I doubt, make me believe. May your spirit use your word this morning to transform our hearts. Please, Father, please do not leave us where we are. Change us. Amen. Psalm 46. It's written by the sons of Korah who served in the tabernacle and the temple. This psalm is written by people of God for the children of God. In the time of the writing of this psalm, the people of God were the nation of Israel. Who are the people of God today? Anyone who has repented and believed in the work of Jesus Christ, in his holy life, in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection from the dead to pay for the penalty of their sin so that they do not suffer the wrath of God. Those are the people of God today. Psalm 46 is written to encourage the people of God. 
God is the one from whom the encouragement booms. And I want you this morning to hear the pounding drums of encouragement. I also want you to hear the clashing cymbals of warning. Hear the drums of encouragement. Don't miss the symbols of warning. The main point of this psalm, it's very straightforward. The main point of this psalm, God is all. Or a friend of mine suggested the God who is. God is all. Or the God who is. God is the main actor of this psalm. He's the, he's the main point of this psalm. God is the focus of this psalm. The psalm has three stanzas. They're separated by Selah. They express the three thoughts of the psalmist. And they'll serve as our three points of this morning's message. Number one in the first stanza, believe God or live fearfully. Believe God or live fearfully, verses one through three. When I was a little boy, my family lived in a bungalow on the south side of Milwaukee and it was a two bedroom home and After my sister and brother were born, I slept in the attic. For a little boy, it sometimes would get fearful sleeping in the attic. And there were times that I would come downstairs expressing to my parents of how afraid that I was. And if you ask my dad, this probably happened more than what I remember. But I do remember my dad walking me back upstairs. And times where he would lay with me in bed and and talk with me or tell me stories until I would fall asleep. And other times, just his words of comfort would be enough for me to drift off to sleep. And I remember him saying something like this, son, I'm downstairs. There's no one who can get up here to get to you without coming past me. You will be okay. And it was my dad's words of comfort that gave me confidence and security to go back to sleep. I believed my dad when he said he would protect me. I trusted my dad's words of assurance. In verse 1, what does God the Father say to his children? He is your refuge. He is your strength. He is very present. He is your help in trouble. Refuge. Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus said this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen 
gathers her brood under her wings. This is what refuge means. And this is what God the Father says to you, his child. Strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul writes what Jesus said to him. Jesus said this to Paul. Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Very present. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For who has a God so near to it as Yahweh, our God, whenever we call on him? Who has a God, small g, who has a God so near as Yahweh, our God, when we call on him? Help. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us who are the children of God draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God only needs to promise something one time for it to be true. For us to trust. But for our benefit, He not only tells us over and over, He also acts over and over to show us that He is faithful to His promise to be our refuge, to be our strength, to be very present, to be our help. Do you believe God? Will you choose to believe God? Because you believe he is true, because you believe he is true, you will not fear. Verse 2. So if you do fear, if you do live fearfully, something is wrong. Either what God said is wrong and he should not be believed or your expectations of your circumstances are wrong. And you are choosing to disbelieve God's promises and believe your expectations. Your fear indicates that you do not believe God's promise in verse 1. Maybe intellectually you do. Or, Or maybe you do partially. 
or maybe you do in certain trials. But when God allows a trial, a circumstance that really presses on one of your idols, there is fear. The sons of Korah are saying, there are things in your life that you want to be rock solid. You want them to be stable. And they use the example of the ground beneath your feet. When that quakes and is not stable, even when what we might think should give confidence and security, the ground beneath our feet, even when that slips away, you will not fear. What do you want to be rock solid in your life? What really rocks your world when it's disrupted? Maybe you know this straight away. But if not, here are some helpful questions that that you can ask yourself. What causes you anxiety? What causes you to worry in a way that can even be combined with anger and impatience? What creates fear? So close, so real so deep inside of you that you cannot run from it. You cannot distract yourself from it. It's a fear that is so dark, it seems to envelop you. Illness for you, your spouse, a child, suffering, Physically, or it may be strife in a relationship, especially a relationship that's close to you, a family member, a friend, your spouse, a perfect family, a perfect career, danger, discomfort. Discouragement. God exposes this so that you and I can see what we are holding on to other than God Himself. He exposes what we are holding on to for comfort and security. Even when these things slip away, you will not fear. Because your confidence, because your security is in God. Who he is and what he has promised to you. Clashing symbols of warning. If your security is built on anything other than the rock of God, you will live fearfully as if you have no help in trouble. The pounding drums of encouragement. Believe God. 
because he is truth. And he has promised to be very present, to be your refuge, to be your strength, to be your help. Believe God or live fearfully. The second stanza and our second point. Be nourished by God or live furiously. Be nourished by God or live furiously. Verses four through seven. Do you drink water only when you're on the verge of dehydration? Now maybe for some of you this is true, but it's not wise or safe. I don't read much poetry, but I love the poetry of the Psalms. They paint such vivid word pictures. And we see that even in our psalm. The waters that are roaring and foaming sea in verse 3 are now gentle and life-giving streams in verse 4. The roaring sea becomes life-giving streams. The city of God is one of the great themes of the Old Testament. And this city is Jerusalem. In one sense, the literal streams that we see in verse 4 provided water to the people of Jerusalem. These streams were life-giving. The people would not survive without water for many days. In another sense, we see the metaphor of water as life-giving throughout all of the scriptures. Consider with me a couple of examples. Psalm 1. The psalmist says, The word of God nourishes a man just as a stream nourishes a tree planted next to it. In John 4, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well, said this to her, if you knew who I am, you would ask me to give you living water. Everyone who drinks of this well that you're drinking from will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give, it will become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. Or Revelation 22 The Apostle John writes, Then he showed me a river of the water of life coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. A British study of shipwreck survivors during World War II showed that men could survive up to eight weeks without food. What do you think was the Maximum time of survival without water. 11 days. As your body becomes increasingly deficient in water, certain symptoms emerge. At the beginning of dehydration, there is thirst and discomfort. Then, a loss of energy. Loss of appetite. Sleepiness, a rise in body temperature, 
than dizziness, headache, tingling in the limbs, dry mouth, difficulty in speaking, inability to walk, delirium, and then death. In their study, very few actually die of dehydration alone. A British physician found that as dehydration increases, the victim's will to resist the desire to drink deadly seawater weakens until finally he succumbs to temptation. And death actually occurs from the drinking of seawater. They did not die immediately, but gradually. What begins with thirst and discomfort ends with delirium before death. Do you see the spiritual parallel? This is why the metaphor of water as life-giving is used throughout the scriptures. In John 15, Jesus said, If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and my words in you. Abide in me and my words in you. This parallels Psalm 1. The word of God nourishes. And then you bear fruit. And Psalm 1 says this person is blessed or happy. Continuing in our psalm, verse 6. Why are the nations furious? Why are they raging? They are outside the city of God. They are not drinking from the streams of God. They are not the children of God and they rage against God. There's also an application for the child of God. What happens when you who are in the city of God do not drink? Spiritual thirst discomfort, delirium in your desires and decisions, the weakening of your will to do what is pleasing to God, and then death. The river of the water of life that flows from the throne is given by God to make you glad. The river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God is given to you to make you glad. To make you abundantly satisfied. Come. Drink of the word. Christ Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, God raised his voice. God raised his voice 
and the kingdoms on earth that are outside the city of God, in fact, the very earth itself melted. The very earth itself melted. But Yahweh is with us. He is with us. Clashing symbols of warning. The clashing symbols of warning in this stanza. God will totter by his voice that melts the earth. Every nation that rages against the help and hope that God brings by the water of his word. God will totter every nation, everyone that rages against the help and hope that he brings by the waters of his word. And if you don't drink deeply from God, you will rage against him. And God will totter you with his voice that melts the earth. The pounding drums of encouragement. Yahweh is with us. In the midst of us, he gives us his word to nourish us and water us with grace. Drink from his word. Believe God or live fearfully. Be nourished by God or live furiously. In our third stanza, be still in God or live frantically. Be still in God or live frantically, verses 8 through 11. How often is your heart frantic, searching? For some, it is often For some, it is less. But we all know when it happens. What do you do when this happens to you? God gives two instructions so this does not happen. Or instructions of what to do when it does happen. First, In verse 8, in the NASB, it says, Come, behold. Come, behold. Behold indicates purposefulness, intentionality, a slowing down. It means to, to look at, to observe. How carefully can you observe if you don't slow down? I remember when our girls were young, we used to hide Easter eggs. And when they were really young, we would put the eggs in their path and almost out in the open right in front of them. And, and even still, they would, they would be quick to kind of waddle past them and they would just be going on their way towards the eggs that are out there and bypass many eggs in their path. But as they got older, they wouldn't walk past any evergreen. They would look on every single branch from the bottom to the top, and they found many more eggs. Come, behold, 
Look, observe the works of Yahweh. Again, the personal, intimate name of God is used. This this isn't observing in a clinical, dispassionate manner, like, like a scientist looking through a microscope. This is... This is observing like Todd and Maggie observing Michaela, their, their newborn baby, and seeing all of the, the curvature of her face and her tiny little nose and her little ears and her tiny fingers. It's observing in a way that a mom and a dad look at their newborn baby or in the way that any of us look at a baby. Isn't it something how the beauty of a baby causes us to be able to just look at that little child, even when, even when they're sleeping and not doing anything, we're captured by the beauty of that baby. The beauty of a baby captivates us. Behold the works of Yahweh. Behold Yahweh himself. And let his beauty captivate you. Look at him. Look at Yahweh until his beauty captivates you. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist's examples to highlight the, the awesome, sovereign power of God, the examples he gives are spectacular. Notice, though, They're examples of desolation and war and destruction. God is sovereign. God exercises power over all of his creation. He is sovereign over everything and everyone. Not one thing happens outside of God's sovereign power. Do you look at the troubles in your life, verse 1, as the sovereign work of God in your life? Or do you look at what you consider as pleasant things when you think of beholding the works of God? So when you think about the works of God and beholding the works of God, do you only think about beauty of pleasant things or do you think about the troubles of your life also as being the works of God? A newborn baby is a beautiful work of God. The mountains, the stars, a person trusting in Jesus. These these are indeed beautiful works of God. And so is the cross, a beautiful work of God. Some of you are out of work. Some of you are sick or know of someone who is very sick. Matt's dad just died last week. Some of you have conflict in a relationship. Some are very significant. Some of you look at your budget, and no matter 
how you calculate it, the numbers just don't work. Some of you have the real pressure of adjusting to new challenges, new routines. The first instruction in verse 8, Behold, observe the sovereign works of Yahweh. The second, verse 10. Cease striving, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. The Hebrew verb, cease striving, or be still, it isn't so much speaking about a lack of movement. It speaks to giving up control. It means to let go, to release your tight grip. Another way to think of this, which may be helpful, be still is not sitting on a dock at a cabin in northern Wisconsin with a cup of coffee watching the sunset. That's not be still. It's more like you're driving in a small car with your family to Yellowstone. You're going through Nebraska. You've been driving all day. It's late at night and the children are in the back screaming and yelling and hitting each other. And you turn around and yell at them, be still. That's what this is. Commentators say, this is not a comfort for a person being harassed, but a rebuke to restless people. It is a rebuke against the hopes of man as opposed to the glory of God. It is a rebuke against the hopes of man as opposed to the glory of God. Man's striving does not achieve the glory of God. Man's striving for control does not achieve intimacy with God. Be still. Know God. Glory in God. Worship God. Come to the arms of God. Let go of trying to control in your trouble. What do you do when you are in the midst of trouble? Is your focus a striving to get relief? Yes, Jesus asked his father in the garden if there was another way other than suffering God's wrath on the cross. And in the same prayer, in the same prayer, he said, if you are willing, yet not my will, but yours. I was listening to counseling videos recently and this comment was made in one of the videos our primary goal is this person's safety and sanity 
I was counseling a person from outside the church and they said to me, more than anything else, I want peace of mind. Or I have had said to me, what I really want is that my wife submit to me as a wife is commanded to submit. Or I have heard, I just really want my husband to lead our family and love me. Now these last two do have some biblical foundation. But these expressions of desire are not the same as Jesus's in the garden. Jesus said this when he prayed in the garden. I will glorify my father by doing his will. This is my paraphrase. I will glorify my father by doing his will even when the result is not my initial request. I will glorify my father. I will do my father's will even when the result is not my initial request. How often do we say to ourselves, I should be treated this way? Or how can this be happening to me? Or I don't deserve this. And that becomes our prayer. And we don't consider that this trouble is God's sovereign will. God was sovereign over what would happen to Jesus. God is sovereign over what happens in your life. Even the trouble in your life. This last week I was talking about this psalm with my friend Jim and we were talking about this, this phrase. There's a difference between you saying God is my fortress and God give me fortresses. There's a difference between you saying, God is my fortress, and God, give me fortresses. What does it mean that God is my fortress? A fortress against what? Not a fortress against suffering. Not a fortress against trouble here on earth. Jesus promised that we would have trouble. He told us that we would have trouble here on earth. No, that's not what it means for God to be our fortress. As the people of God, God is our redemptive, eternal fortress. And this is why we worship. And this is why we're joyous in the midst of trouble. The person who keeps striving in their own control becomes frantic. You are not sovereign. Your striving to be in control is rebellion. Don't miss the notes of judgment in the second half of verse 8. The works of Yahweh include discipline. Here it's described as desolation. And and in verse 9, 
It isn't a picture of some kind of gentle peace negotiation. It is a mighty victory of God crushing those who opposed him. Why verse 9? Why verse 9? It's a result of not following verse 10. God will be exalted. God will be exalted among the nations. Oh, how much more. How much more should he be exalted among his people? This psalm is about God and exalting him, especially in our trouble. Clashing symbols of warning from this stanza. God brings desolation on every person on earth who wars to win earthly things rather than rest in the glory of God. God brings desolation on every person on earth who wars to win earthly things rather than resting in the glory of God. Drums of encouragement. Yahweh, who is sovereign over all the hosts of heaven. Yahweh, who is sovereign over all the hosts of heaven and all creation. Yahweh is with us. He's with us. Are you unequivocally living for the glory of his name? in seasons of blessing and in seasons of trouble. I was listening this past week to Stephen Uli, who's a ACBC fellow, and he was uh, teaching a segment, and uh, this is a, a portion of what he said, and I found it to be very applicable and convicting for my, for my heart. He said in his teaching, as I struggle and as I talk with others in their struggle, I see common errors. My expectations are not governed by God's promises, but by something else. We must be very clear with what God has promised. God has not promised us immunity from debilitating illness. He has not promised us immunity from strife, even in our marriages. He has not promised us immunity from personal loss or from death. He has not promised us a perfect family, a perfect career, or a perfect life. He has not promised a life free from disorder, danger, discomfort, Or discouragement. God has promised to remember our sins no more. God has promised to work all things together for our spiritual good. God has promised to never forsake us. God has promised to keep us 
to preserve us, to guard us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. In other words, he has promised to preserve us. Please hear this. Please hear this. He has promised to preserve us from the ultimate evil. God has promised to preserve us from the ultimate evil, which is what? The loss of him. This is the greatest evil of all. The loss of him. That's what God has promised to preserve us from. Yahweh is with us. He has promised to bestow on us a wonderful inheritance in Christ. Oh, our expectations must be governed by God's promises. The takeaway is this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let these objective biblical promises, as we find them in God's word, let them abide in us, dwell in us. May we embrace them, internalize them. May we believe them because they are the very words of God and we believe him. May God himself be our fortress. May we not look elsewhere. Believe God. Be nourished by God. Be still in God. God is all. Make him your all. Father, I pray that your word in this psalm may be an encouragement to our souls. May we hear the warnings, and, and we need to hear warning because we are not fully glorified yet. We sin. We, we hope in wrong things. We seek after things of this world as opposed to you. And we need to repent. We need to be sanctified of these things. We need to be warned. And I thank you for warning us. I thank you for not leaving us where we are, but continuing to transform us into the image of, our, of your son so that we can know you more purely. So may we hear the symbol of warning. but may our focus be on the drumbeat of encouragement, which is you yourself. May you be our fortress. May we glory in your glory. And may we worship you and grow in you. Because you are with us and we thank you for it. Amen.